Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. In this episode, we had a conversation with Dr. Mary Brindle. Dr. Brindle is a pediatric surgeon at the Alberta Children's Hospital in Calgary, Alberta. We had a unique discussion about the relationship between art and surgery and how those two disciplines interact and inform each other. We also heard from Dr. Brindle about her work on updating the Safe Surgery Checklist and her work on ERAS in pediatric surgery. Check out our show notes for links to Dr. Brindle's papers as well as to the paintings we discussed in the episode. We hope you enjoy. Well, Dr. Brindle, thank you very much in this uh, in this crazy time for joining us. We really, really do appreciate it. It's a, a pleasure to have you on. We've been looking forward to it for sure. Um, we're just curious, uh, for those listeners that maybe don't know you, uh, where did you grow up and, and what was your training pathway like in terms of um, you know medical school and making a decision to go into surgery and eventually ped surgery? Yeah, no, I, I I I followed a bit of a different route than I think most people did. Um, certainly at the time that I was going through uh, my educational pathway, I'm from uh, St. Catharines, Ontario, so a relatively small-ish town that is uh, across Lake Ontario from Toronto. Um, I grew up there, and I did my undergraduate degree actually in art at uh, Yale University. Um, in the United States, and then I went to Dalhousie University in Halifax for my medical school. I did my general surgery training in Vancouver. Um, during that time, I, I took a couple of years to do research at, at Stanford, finished up my uh, my general surgical training in Vancouver, and then my fellowship at SickKids in Toronto before um, coming to Calgary, where I've been since I, I finished my fellowship. So that's, uh, it's a bit of a circuitous route, but that's kind of how I ended up where I am now. Well, what was the thing that made you want to do surgery and then more specifically pediatric surgery? Yeah, no, and it's interesting. I, um, I was interested in surgery at the time I was thinking about medicine in general. So um a lot of the um a lot of my interest like way back before thinking about medical school was in uh anatomy and the creative process and the technical process of uh of actually doing things with my hands so surgery was very appealing to me both for the the problem solving nature of it and for the technical side of it so even when i was first starting out into medicine that was something that that i was really interested in doing and pediatric surgery is a uh, is an area, particularly neonatal surgery, which is um, a great passion of mine, is an area that is very much about about anatomy. Um, it's uh, it's often a very creative process because you don't always know exactly what you're going to uh, what you're going to find in a case, and you have to be able to develop sort of creative solutions sometimes because not everything um, kind of follows the textbook. 
So uh, there's there's that. Um, of course, there are other things about pediatric surgery that, for me, made it very appealing. Um, in medical school, when people were thinking about their areas of specialization, a lot of people would say, I would love to go into a pediatric specialty, but uh, I just think that I would find it really frustrating to deal with families. And um, I've got to say, it's one of the it's one of the nicest things that we do in pediatric surgery is working with families um, to try and come up with a, a care plan and a care pathway. I've got to say, like, 99% of the time, you're all sort of moving in the same direction. You all want the same thing. Um, it's rare, I think, to, to have big differences between your overall goal in a, in a, from a parent's perspective to a surgeon's perspective. So there's a lot of things that I really liked about pediatric surgery long before I started looking at it. And I guess I'd add one other thing, just to get back to the technical side of it. It's, uh, it's not a very forgiving specialty when you're dealing with neonatal surgery in terms of technical error. Um, if, if you do something right the first time, you have great results. And I guess this is the same in many other areas of surgery, but neonatal tissues are not very forgiving, so there's a real pressure to be um, technically correct right at the outset. It's so true. Yeah, there's, there's mm-hmm. no doubt. And, you know, a lot of those elements are what draws us to our particular subspecialties. It's, uh, it's amazing. Yeah. Well. How, how core and central that is to, to so many of us, eh? Exactly. Um, Mary, one of the things that you wrote that uh, a lot of us across the country really, really liked uh, very much was the, the piece uh, with Andrew Seal and, and Roscoe about the, sort of the history of, uh, at least your guys' history of art and surgery and the, the intermingling in between those two things. So, you know, we, we heard you mention that uh, um, you had formal art training. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about maybe that article, in particular, how you see those two worlds interacting, how, how it informs your practice of surgery, or maybe it doesn't, I don't know, and vice versa, and just a general, a general sense of all that uh, amazing stuff that you've done. Yeah, no, I, I really loved doing that article with uh, Andrew Seal. I mean, you know, you know Dr. Seal. He is, um, uh, he is a really remarkable human being. Like, yeah. He's an excellent surgeon. He's a tremendous artist. And um, I think he has also done a lot of work to try and encourage that creative side of medical students, um, residents, people in the healthcare system. So it was really fun to do. And, and he and I have similar and also different uh, perceptions of the role of art um, in in a surgeon's life in particular. Um, I, I, I feel like uh, uh, Dr. Seal really saw a lot of this as being an ability to get away from the uh, sort of the, the stress of, of surgery, something to do which really takes you apart and, and takes you in a different direction. And I see that, but I also see them as very much uh, interrelated. And, and I think that on, on many levels, he does as well. Uh, some of the things that I think are very similar um, is this sort of um, dedication without clear uh, external rewards all the time to the pursuit of a craft. Um, and it's interesting, when I was in... Uh, 
in art school, in undergrad, uh, at that point, I didn't know anyone who had come from that background who went into medicine, and, and actually neither did the people who were in the medical system at Yale. It was very unusual, and there was a hmm. perception that... <laughs> there was a perception That's so that interesting. People, I love it. I know. I know. Well, it, it, and and I, I think there's probably a lot more of that now, but there was a perception that people in art were somewhat flaky, um, not right. really... Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, I've got to say, like myself and the, my like my friends who I worked with, like we were in the studio one in the morning, two in the morning, like constantly working on this. Not necessarily um, being able to be confident that the all of that hard work would necessarily come to what we would want it to do to be at the end, but recognizing that without that hard work, we would never we would never get there. Yeah, and. And I, I think that prepared me very, very well. It was much less structured than the science programs at the time. It's it it's so interesting, um, you know. I, and I I want to maybe get your thoughts. Um, I, I certainly, you know, in in, in full disclosure, uh, live far from the art world. My uh, you know, I, I, I'm so impressed by it and I'm so mesmerized by it and your talent and others' talent and the process, it's, it's mesmerizing to, and that's the word that, like that I really, really fall back to, um, just to, just to be around and, and watch. But I, I gotta be honest, one of the most, um, interesting, actually like two of the most interesting podcasts I've ever heard were Dave Chang when he had Jerry Salz on. And, uh, you know, again, for those who don't know, Jerry Saltz is a Pulitzer, recently Pulitzer-winning um, uh, critic, uh, writer uh, in in New York. And he, he talks so deeply and so interestingly about exactly what you just mentioned in terms of process um, and the lack of external validation. And sometimes when that external validation comes, how inaccurate it can be, um, it, it's such a different driver in many ways than, than surgery, eh? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. I mean, different in. Yeah, no, I, I suppose in surgery you you see your product um, pretty quickly, and yeah. the value of it is relatively clear at the end. But the process, I think, is still, and it kind of gets to this idea of of excellence and achieving excellence. It's um, it's a difficult process to go through. It's uh, and I think that art and medicine, particularly surgery, I think share a lot in that respect. Doctor Ball and I didn't talk about this beforehand, but I was just thinking about that David Chang podcast because I think the interesting thing that he does is I mean, he interviews all sorts of interesting different types of people, chefs, athletes. But w- when you get two people kind of at the height of their craft, it's it's surprising and interesting how how much overlap there is when people just pursue their craft for the sake of their craft. And um, like, I'm curious for those people who haven't read the, the article, like, how do you think that your art has, do you think the fact that you were an artist has helped you become a better surgeon and, or vice versa? How do you think the two have kind of interplayed? Yeah, no, I, I definitely think it has. And I think uh, part of it is um, is this idea of the pursuit of um, kind of individual excellence. And, and I mean, I, I do a lot of health systems research, and I'm a huge believer that um, system performance 
is incredibly important in giving the very best care to our patients. But there is another side of that, which I think is the the surgeon's own personal uh, contribution to a patient's outcome. And I feel like that is this, this pursuit of excellence, which I think shares a lot within art, where we aren't simply aiming for, um, for being uh, adequate, but we're aiming to be, uh, to be, to achieve mastery, to be better than, um, than what you basically just need to do your daily work. Um, and that, I think, requires a, a certain internal dedication so that uh, you, may, you may come to work and you may do, in, in your training, you may come to work, you may do an appendectomy and your staff person's like, great, no problems, that's really good. Um, or you may have a staff person who sort of narrows down on some of the key areas that you could do better. But at the end of the day, you're going to move from person to person to person in terms of the people who teach you. What I think is really important, and particularly when you're done training, is that you have integrated that desire for self-improvement into your daily work so that at the end of a case or during a case, you're concentrating on those technical aspects and at the end you can reflect upon them and you can say, I was happy with this or I wasn't happy with this and I'm going to get better. Musicians do this all the time, but I'd say that painters and artists, we do the same thing. Um, you look at what you've done and you think, I really feel like I didn't really capture that the way I wanted to. There's the technical side of it. There's the, the way you envision it. Um, I think those were really important for me in, um, in becoming a surgeon and I think actually continuing to grow as a surgeon. Yeah, con- continued quality improvement or whatever terminology you want to apply to it is important for all of us no matter what we do. There's, there's no doubt. Um, one of the things, Mary, that I, you know, I sort of warned you, I maybe I would I would bring up was the the quote from uh, Michelangelo. I think that that is so interesting when we think of it, and at least when I think of it in the terms of uh, the context of surgery, which is that natural ta- talent, dedication, and self teaching are not sufficient to carry one to the height of mastery, and essentially the relationship. Um, between the mentor and the and the school and the and the participant are central to the success of 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 that individual. What what do you think of that quote, and how do you relate it to surgery? Um, because of course, in, in surgery, the training is you know reasonably regimented, and mm-hmm. we do you do see artists, of course, that don't have classic or formal training who are absolute rock stars and amazing, and you really don't so much see that in surgery per se, but. What do you think of all that? Yeah, and this is this area, too. And uh, uh, Andrew Seal and I talked a little bit about this. And this is one of those areas where modern art can diverge um, somewhat from um, from the surgical training in that you, you take the Renaissance artists around the time of Michelangelo, the Northern Renaissance artists like Hans Holbein, um, these are people who the, the technical aspects and achieving mastery over that was incredibly important, being able to depict something in a very precise and certain way. Um, and I do feel like we there's an area where we have some overlap. I do like that. I was glad that you sent that to me because it really does reflect this um, this apprenticeship idea also in surgery. And I, and I think that with the changes in medical education, there's been a bit of a drawing back from the idea of apprenticeship. Like this, it feels a little bit negative that you should put in your time and at the end of it you come out as a finished product. 
But there is something very important in learning from, uh, in learning from like people who have achieved a certain degree of mastery that doesn't come as easily through didactic learning um, or even simulation sessions. There is something about this graduated um, sort of uh, acquisition of skills and the, the technical mastery that you can achieve uh, when you're actually doing surgery that is harder to achieve outside of that. It resonated with me. I was really glad that you sent that along. Can you can you teach uh, like the art of surgery or the, that dedication by breaking it down? Or like, how do you think that competency-based design fits within this whole idea of surgery as sort of this this technical mastery, this art form that we're all trying to achieve? Yeah. Well, I mean, surgery is complicated. Uh, and being a good surgeon is certainly not about just someone showing up and doing an exceptional job at an operation. I think we all, you know, we all recognize that. And I think that some of the changes in the way we pursue education reflects the fact that um, the art of surgery is not simply the technical art, but also the clinical decision-making, the problem-solving, what have you. So there is certainly, I think, a component that the competency by design um, does teach. And at the end of the day, um, it's a little different than if if you are dealing with, say, a musician or an artist. And in most cases, you are really getting a tiny proportion of people who do high-performance work and what have you. But we want a you know, we want a large number of highly skilled and trained surgeons and how you go about doing that unless you have some form of saying that there is competency that we want to um, instill and measure and achieve in our in our trainees. And I think this mastery, which is a really important part of it, has to be something which is integrated into this. But I think it is even more important in in sort of changing your mindset as a surgeon so that after your training that you continue to try to achieve that because I feel like there is so much to learn in training that this this true mastery, the artistry of surgery, is something that you are going to continue to develop years after you've left a training program. Speaking of lifelong pursuits, how do you, like what advice do you have for trainees who let's say are starting or, or, or in the middle of their training who have interests that are uh, like art or other things outside of surgery or medicine. Um, how, how, what advice do you have to people um, to uh, on keeping up with those, those uh, passions outside of surgery and how have you done that in your life? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, it's hard because even in art, there can be a lot of traditionalist thinking on like when I was in, school in in art school there was this this pathway that you would go through and there were it was presumed that if you were going to be a successful artist you would do your degree then you would do a master's and you would be a teacher and then you would on the side work in galleries and this was just the pathway that you follow um and i think that what's really important i for for us uh those of us who are interested in art outside of um our medical practices is to find a way of recognizing that the value of the art that we do um, can be quite different than the way people have traditionally told us um, we should be valuing art. 
So, you know, we don't, like when I was in art school, it's all about, well, you know, if you're not showing your art, if people aren't buying it or looking at it, that it's, it doesn't have the value. You have to change that in your head so that you recognize the importance of the art to you as an individual. Um, and that can be either very, very personal. You don't show your art anywhere. It's just for yourself. It's part of your personal growth. Or that it, there is some component of sharing that. But it doesn't need to fit um, any particular sort of measure of success that we've been told throughout our life that this is your sign of you as a successful artist. You can do it 100%. You absolutely can. But that's, that doesn't have to be the way you do it. And there's lots of people who I know who uh, continue to pursue art and continue to show and continue to engage with audiences. And if you keep that up, um, you can go back to a more traditionalist uh, kind of approach to art at a, at a certain point in your career or even all the way along your career. But I think what's really important is that you find a way of integrating that way of either seeing the world or or sort of pursuing art for yourself as a, as a deeply personal thing to make that part of, of you but not to necessarily expect that kind of external validation um, for, for what's really, I think, a very internal process. I'm just curious, you know, how I, you know, you're such a, you're such a busy person administratively and clinically. How often do you paint? How do you, how do you get it in, in, your, in your life? And, and also, what's your, what's your process like? I'm always fascinated in asking artists, do, do you see the end result, the painting, for example, before you start, or is it a, an evolution and it changes, your vision of it changes as you go? Um, how, how does that work for you? Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. And I go through, through periods of um, sort of more art productivity and less art productivity, kind of depending on of everything else that's going on, but I do try to keep uh, somewhat involved on a regular basis. And you know, when I get really busy with um, uh, research or um, clinical work or what have you, I, I try and maintain involvement either through a lot of just engagement with art or sketching. And right now I've been doing a lot of sketching and I just, uh, the last few days I've been sort of, sort of going down and and getting my my studio ready to to do some more like actual studio painting, but that's more of a like a, a bit of a rigorous process to do that. Doing oil painting, which is what I do, is the kind of thing where you don't just sort of go and and spend like a few minutes doing it. It's like the setup is um, it takes a while that type it's of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's all in. But when I do when I do um, painting, it can be a few different ways. Either it can be very much like uh, an exercise of just putting ideas down, drawing things, um, quick paintings, or if I'm doing some of my larger paintings, I spend a lot of time um, drawing and redrawing, um, uh, playing with the composition, that type of thing. Um, and even things like I... I even things that, that look uh, relatively um, spur of the moment, I've usually, I've usually spent a bit of time drawing and redrawing them before they, they make their way onto onto a canvas. Um, I think a little bit about... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I went to um, Madrid a few years back, and I saw all of these studies and sketches that Picasso had done for that painting, Guernica. And there, like, he had rooms full of... Really? Yeah, all the elements of this painting that he worked and reworked and reworked and resketched and redeveloped 
for a painting that feels really immediate, um, very uh, emotional, right? It's yeah, but the you know, whole process itself doesn't make it stagnant. It makes it living. I see. We're just curious okay. who, who your favorite artists are, and if you have any particularly favorite paintings. Yeah, and they, and, and they can be abstract, so we are all the way from us. So we have to go look them up too. It'd be great. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I mean, it's, it, these are hard questions, of course, because it's yeah. a little bit like if you if you ask someone like, "What's your favorite um, musicians? What's your favorite band?" It's you know, I, I mean, like oh, like boy. people's interest in music, I have diverse interest in art. But one, um, uh, I've mentioned Jean Michel Basquet. I I love his art. I love his vision. He's a guy who's really interested in anatomy and in in narratives and story. Um, there are many paintings that he does. A lot of them are untitled, so it's hard to say like untitled. But lots yeah. of lots of these narrative paintings. But um, there's another painting that I that I really quite like, and it's similar and different it's, uh, than than Basket's work. It's uh, the Ambassadors, which is uh, Hans Holbein's painting. Um, this is a painting which is a huge painting. It's in the National Gallery. Um, it depicts um, two ambassadors, and they're kind of surrounded by um, sort of elements of science and things that they've picked up in different places, and it's, it's, highly, it's a highly detailed painting. It's a very well-developed painting. It's highly realistic and colorful. And then kind of across the front of this painting, there is this, um, this sort of deformed skull that stretches from the left side up across to the midpoint of the painting that if you look at the painting, you don't see it. It looks like a smear. It looks like something unrelated. But if you stand in the right angle, that it um, wow. it turns into this this skull. Which I, I, I remember that painting as a kid, and I loved it, and I still really appreciate it because it's got this narrative, and um, it's uh, it's a highly like you just know the hours of work that went into it, but also the, the many ideas that come out from that. Um, wow. I love it. Yeah. I want it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great painting. It really is. It's worth going to see in person. Whenever I'm in, in London, I try to, to see that painting. Uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what your work with Ariadne Labs has been like. Uh, I had the the opportunity to meet um, Alex Haynes while he was still there and kind of explore yeah. that a little bit. And I was so impressed by their group and the work they've been putting out. How did you get involved with Ariadne Labs, and, and what is it, has it been like to work with such an innovative group? You know, it's, yeah, so the, I guess it, it started when I did my, my MPH, um, which was back in 2010, 2011. I just had some very small interactions with Atul Gawande, but nothing you know, not nothing significant, but I was interested in the work that he was doing. Um, then when I took my sabbatical, I decided that I really wanted to develop more of this kind of health systems research. And I wrote to Atul at that time and said, this is something I'm interested in. Um, what do you think? And he said, look, we've just started up this Ariadne Labs. Be a really good fit. Let me put you in touch with Bill Barry, who was at that point... Um, the connection for safe surgery. He said he, he'll he'll help you out. We'd love to have you, and so that's that's really how it it started. Was back doing my sabbatical, um, and I like I, I really wanted to sort of 
dig in deep to understand how, you know, how these health systems can improve. It's it's a fascinating lab because they're really, really interested in, in changing changing things, not necessarily publishing, not, you know, not looking at what we typically think of as our, our academic tick boxes, but to actually say, like, we see a problem. This problem exists all over the world. We're going to develop a solution that works here in this one site, and we're going to scale it up, and we're going to try and make it work everywhere. It's, it's a really different way of seeing research um, in, in a very much like a we want to change the world type thing, which is super appealing. I think you know it was it was really um, it was really fun to work with those guys, and that's kind of how that started. Um, and then from that work, um, I got interested in this this uh, safe surgery checklist revision project, you know, recognizing that um, you know that a checklist itself shouldn't be a static uh, tool; it should change as the world that we live in changes, it should evolve based on what we learn. Um, and that was kind of uh, sort of the impetus for the project that I've continued with Ariadne Labs. And it's probably um, the reason why the work that I've done with Ariadne Labs has really kind of blossomed into the work that I'm doing with them now. I mean, when I went there, I, I really got the same sense that you did. And, and again, I was just there peripherally. But it almost feels like a cross between you know, uh, a Google kind of startup type scene and uh, like a hardcore Harvard research uh, yeah. lab, which is, it, it, I don't know how they've managed to kind of get those two ambiances, but it really does feel yeah. like Yeah, it does give you like this feeling of, um, you know, sort of uh, intersection of different groups, like creativity, a lot of sharing. It's a big open concept lab, which can occasionally be, um, a little bit exhausting because you're always, you know, sort of interacting and intersecting with people. But at the same time, it really pushes that kind of dynamic, like get bring people together, um, develop solutions to problems. I mean, there's a real push to do things in a way that is, uh, you know, relatively quick and relatively comprehensive. Can you talk a little bit about what the the work that you're doing with revising the checklist? Like, how, how does uh, how does something like a checklist evolve or change? I think most of us feel like it's something that you put on a, a piece of paper. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's the thing. It's, um, there's problems even with the concept of a checklist as a checklist, because it feels like these are the things that I need to do to move to the next stage. And it becomes, um, a bit of a, you know, kind of a tick box exercise where, people are more interested in, you know, getting that, you know, that piece of paper completed rather than actually achieving the concepts that are behind the checklist, which are really those to do with, like, improved communication um, and improved understanding of uh, what you're, you're supposed to be doing in the operation to come. I mean, I think that everything that we're dealing with right now with COVID um, has really uh, sharpened our view of the importance of these types of um, sort of structured communication strategies so that you have a shared understanding. So from the, the initial creation of the checklist, which was at that point, there wasn't a lot to go on. There were pilot checklists. They were checklists that people were doing in the ICU. Um, there was a real push from the WHO to say, what can you create that's going to work everywhere? Um, so really what came came out from that first project was something that was, um, I don't want to call it a first draft because it certainly wasn't. It was very well thought out. 
but nothing of that scale had been created before. So there's been a ton of learning since then, and people have recognized the problems that the Chekhos can drift into this tick box thing and, and how we can bring it back to something which is much more communication-based. So we've learned a lot from that point, and what a new checklist should look like. I, don't, I shouldn't say a new checklist, a new approach to a checklist or how we should develop a checklist or what that, you know, what a revision would look like, I think has been informed by what people all over the world have been seeing in terms of what works, what doesn't work, um, places that have used it particularly well, how that's integrated into something. So and we had a meeting uh, in Boston back in early December where we brought people from the UK, from Australia, New Zealand, um, uh, United States, Canada, from all over the place. But we were really sort of concentrating on high-income countries just to keep our scope manageable at the beginning, although we're planning a, a second stage of this. And we brought everyone together and said, "What's you know, what should we be thinking about now? Here's, here's the whole slew of published evidence on what works and what doesn't. Um, and clearly, under the right circumstances, the checklist can work very well. And under poor circumstances, it really doesn't improve things. And so we brought people together, and we've been in the process of collecting information on what will make the checklist better. How do we optimize it? And we're kind of at that stage now of um, sort of breaking that down into approach to modifying the checklist and approach to implementing the checklist. Um, how do we teach and educate around that? Um, we've we've done a little bit of um, early preliminary work with the, the WHO to say, like, what's the next step in terms of looking at the global WHO checklist? I mean, it's kind of like it's, it's, a, it's an involved process, but I think an important process. Um, the checklist has to feel, like, dynamic. Otherwise, uh, we're just using a dusty tool that uh, that doesn't really have any relevance. And sort of on related lines, you've done so much work on ERAS in pediatric surgery. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and, and, and how you got interested in it and why you think it's so important? Yeah, and it kind of fits into some of this, this same idea of um, how we can create systems to improve safety. I mean, enhanced recovery after surgery has a like a clear role in certain areas of surgery, particularly colorectal surgery, which is where it started. And um, one of the things I really like about enhanced recovery after surgery is that it is really, really focused on how the, the ERS guideline is used. The guideline itself exists, but so much of the focus of um, groups that use ERAS is like, well, how do we actually take these recommendations and put them into practice? And how do we evaluate how people are putting this into practice. And this real sense of, like, if you're not seeing how you're actually using the ERAS guideline, if you're not evaluating that, then you're not doing it right. Um, and I really liked a lot of those concepts. And some of them are just easy wins. Like, this this idea um, back, like, 10 years ago that a patient after a colonic resection needed to stay in hospital for a given number of days just because that's the way it was always done like this kind of turns that around a little bit. It really focuses on um, the patient and moving things forward. So a lot of ideas that I really liked. And the pediatrics just wasn't at the table for that. It just, people have been expanding the use of enhanced recovery after surgery to all sorts of different areas. It's really, you know, taken off in like gynecologic oncology surgery. But I think pediatrics felt different because 
I mean, because it is very different. Children are different. Their needs are different. Um, and we decided that if we were going to look at, uh, at enhanced recovery after surgery in pediatrics, rather than just sort of going to say, well, how would it work for adolescents and, and you know, what can we use and what can we not use, we sort of said, well, we love these concepts and how it works. Let's actually go to the most complicated and farthest away patient population, neonates, and, you know, see, see what an ERS protocol would look like for them. And this was a, like, this was a, a very uh, comprehensive process to go through it, um, to try and start from scratch and say what works and what doesn't work. Let's, like, give ourselves a blank slate. Um, recognizing a lot of the principles of BRS, we want to capture that, but, um, you know, we can't, like, getting a neonate up and walking doesn't happen. So <laughs> what, are the, <laughs> what, are the, what are the neonatal sides of that? What is, like, what's the parent's role? Um, and it's a little bit like, I, I mean, from doing this work with a checklist, it's the same type of thing. We got an international group together, and this one's more, I'd say, international in scope in that we had people from Hong Kong and from Sweden and from the U.K. and from everywhere, um, to evaluate as thorough as we could all the relevant like data that's out there to create a bit of a guideline um, and then to kind of push that forward. Um, and it's, you know, it took a lot of work, but it, this is going to be the framework that we build from to do further um, pediatric ear-ass work, to, you know, to kind of come from the other direction. And it kind of allowed us to create some standards for what an ERAS guideline should actually look like. And that's one of the things that we've, uh, that we started working on as well because uh, everyone kind of knows what ERAS looks like, but the, until this past year, we actually didn't have anything down on paper as to this is what constitutes an ERAS guideline. You know, we kind of worked on that as well with the ERAS Society. Mary, we can't thank you enough for, uh, for spending time with us on Cold Steel. It was amazing to hear all the stuff you're, you're involved in and engaged in and moving surgery forward, and thank you for that. But most importantly, thank you for the art lesson. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again. <laughs>